world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Friday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us to uh, conclude an eventful week between the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearing and uh, the dueling town halls last night. Let's begin with the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearing. I uh, referenced a very good op-ed in the Wall Street Journal from Jonathan Turley, who's a law professor at George Washington University. We've discussed his reviews before. He writes, as a law professor, I've long viewed confirmation hearings with the same disdain as atonal music. They lack any cohesion or satisfaction. Confirmation hearings produce the same random noise of bloviating senators and evasive nominees until this week. The confirmation hearing of Judge Amy Coney Barrett had substance and even a discernible pattern. The nominee expressed herself in a strong and unmistakable tone. She uh, argues, Turley, more open than any nominee since Robert Bork in 1987, ironically and uh, appropriately also an originalist. It was clear from the outset that this would be a different confirmation when Judge Baird answered the first questions from Chuck Grassley. She came out of the gate with this declaration. I interpret the Constitution as a law, quoting her here, that I interpreted as text as text, and I understand it to have the meaning that it had at the time people ratified it. So that meaning doesn't change over time, and it isn't up to me to update or infuse my own policy views into it, unquote. And, of course, this was pilloried by... Um, lesser legal minds like uh, Hillary Clinton and others. Nonetheless, I appreciated the Robert Bork invocation since uh, that really marks a turning point in the Supreme Court confirmation hearing process where it became hyperpartisan and politicized and the object was to destroy the reputation of the nominee if he, wasn't, he or she was not from your party. For more on this, as well as uh, uh, matters regarding big tech, Pleased to be joined by Robert Bork, Jr. He is the president of the Bork Foundation. Robert Bork, Jr., thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, I have to say um, I had the opportunity to speak to your father after he uh, published uh, Slouching Towards Gomorrah, and uh, I really appreciated his life's work. So it's a pleasure to speak with you uh, as well, the son of Robert Bork, obviously. And your uh, your reaction to... Uh, Professor Turley's comparison of Judge Barrett to your father back in his 87 confirmation hearing. I think she is clearly out of the same mold uh, that he is or was, an originalist, a legal scholar, a judge on an appellate court. Uh, I think she's perfect for the time. I'm very glad that it looks like she will glide through uh, if we can get to the next week. Turning to this piece that uh, you wrote for RealClearPolitics.com on um, the uh, sort of uh, corollary uh, issue of the day uh, in terms of importance, which is uh, big tech and how big tech is treating content that is unflattering to their fellow travelers ideologically, most notably these New York Post stories that relate to allegedly Hunter B- a computer uh, of Hunter Biden's that was unearthed at a Delaware repair shop turned over to Rudy Giuliani and now the content splashed across the pages of the New York Post. But uh, Twitter and Facebook tried to prevent the dissemination. Twitter has since repositioned itself, redefined what it considers hacked content and is allowing the post stories to be distributed on its platform. But here's what uh, Ted Cruz said about Twitter and Facebook on Fox yesterday in defending his decision 
uh, and, and those of other Senate Republicans to whistle in the executives of Twitter and Facebook for yet another hearing on their policies and practices next week. By the way, Twitter and Facebook, they don't do this for all of the attacks on Donald Trump. You know, the New York Times claims to have his tax records, wrote article after article about them. Twitter and Facebook didn't block you from tweeting on that. The, the Steele dossier now totally debunked all sorts of sc- scurrilous sex allegations about the president. People tweet about that all the time. But when it comes to Joe Biden, Twitter has decided that they are using their multi-billion dollar monopoly power to try to silence all discussion and keep the voters ignorant. It, it, it is big tech censorship has always been bad. But they really crossed a line in the last 24 hours. I'm not aware of their previously actively censoring major press outlets. It's, it's, not, it's not really any different than Twitter so, blocking Fox News from sending out a story. Look, Fox News may be right or wrong. The New York Post may be right or wrong. But silencing the media is a direct violation of the principles of the First Amendment. We're seeing Silicon Valley billionaires, frankly, drunk with power. Uh, Ted Cruz is a fairly recognized uh, constitutional scholar himself. Do you agree that uh, Twitter and Facebook crossed a a line here that uh, triggers some uh, uh, either uh, litigation from the Justice Department or legislative remedy, the the need for it? It's understandable why conservatives are frustrated with tech companies and how they sometimes filter information. I'm frustrated with it. I thought what happened with the New York Post was unbelievable, horrific example of uh, misuse of their power. But I also think that it's not smart or the right way to go to uh, tear down Section 230, the protections that he was referring to, uh, and and he and Senator Hawley want to tear down. Uh, I think that is too much. I think in, in, in doing that, they will uh, degrade or dis, uh, discard, you know, the immunity, uh, the protection of free speech online. And we conservatives may rue the day that that happens. I think there are alternatives to that. I, maybe it's a good bluff, a good threat, but it's not the way to go. I, I, I also must say that I don't know how these processes or how they, they, the thought process happens at Twitter in Facebook and other places uh, when they decide to block something. Uh, I know friends who've been blocked on Facebook. I, I tend not to be because I post pictures of my kids and my, my dog. But, you know, <laughs> right. But, but uh, uh, you know, I don't, I don't use them to communicate political uh, well, thoughts, mostly. In, in but your, but I just, I, can I just say that? I yeah, think yeah, go ahead. This idea that there's some sort of high-level conspiracy may be misplaced. Yes, the, the, you know, the executives... And yes, the people in Silicon Valley are more liberal than you and I by far. But it may be that these woke young staffers on these platforms, the people who develop the algorithms and the standards, they're the people who are probably causing the problem. And there's a different way to deal with that than tearing down you know, the, these, these protections that uh, will, will protect us, too. I share your concerns, uh, and I think uh, any true free marketeer would share your concerns, and originalists would share your concerns. You write in your piece um, uh, how how conservatives plan to censor themselves. Diluting the protections of Section 230 will lead to homogenized content, an anodyne, PC-friendly domain of opinions as social media platforms remove any opinions that stray too far from the imposed norm. 
but, uh, you know, a- again, not that I, I necessarily agree that this should be the instrument removing the 230 protections. But if that happened and what you're describing happened, wouldn't that then provide for um, a market opportunity for somebody to actually establish a platform that truly is a open marketplace of ideas and exchange? I think there is one. Uh, isn't isn't Parler supposed to be that? It's, yes, right. It, um, and, there, and there will be more. I think the marketplace will meet the needs of people who feel frustrated by the policies or the actions of Twitter and Facebook and others. The Internet is only one click away from a different choice, when it, whether it comes to a search engine or Facebook. I mean, I know people who are getting off Facebook all the time. They just, I mean, they just tell me that they're, they've had it and they're going to go do something else. I just don't think I just I just don't think that the big hand of government is the way to go here. I mean, remember now, if we were to do that, and and you know, and the, or this next, if the next administration happens to be a Biden administration, you know, the same people who abuse the powers of the IRS and the FBI may soon be certifying speech. Well, I think uh, I think that's a fair uh, issue to raise. I, I do, and and so when you say if Section Two Thirty uh, eliminating those protections is not the way to go, antitrust uh, led, uh, litigation not the way to go. Um, do you have a, a thought on uh, a way to address the, the the frontline staffers, if you will, that are doing the, uh, the the ideological censoring that we that you described? The big tech companies are in a, are in a bad place. It's perilous where they are right now. They've they've gotten themselves in this perilous place. Uh, they have both political parties against them. They have you know AOC and Jim Jordan mad at them. Yeah, right. Uh, I think you know I think this is an optimal time for conservatives to engage with these companies. I know, for example, that uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg last summer was uh, you know, meeting with conservatives, and, and I think his thinking has changed, become more open. He has a company that he has to manage, but it may not, may not be going as well as he'd like. But you know, they, we have to engage with them. We should press them to hire people uh, to write their algorithms and make you know, content decisions who are less ideolo- ideologically rigid and more sensitive uh, to diversity of opinion, I, you know, and, and more, tra- think, and more transparent, perhaps the, the and more transparent. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. He is Robert H. Bork, Jr. He's the president of the Bork Foundation. Uh, check out his piece, how conservatives plan to censor themselves at realclearpolitics.com, which I will tweet out at Dan Prof show. Uh, Robert Bork, Jr. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Turning our attention to uh, the town halls from Thursday evening. And uh, here we go again. (laughs) Any member of the press and their interaction with President Trump. If you only had a transcript of the remarks from the Trump town hall, with Savannah Guthrie and the POTUS debate with Chris Wallace moderating just a transcript without attribution of the you know, names as to who said what it would be a coin flip to figure it out because it's not even groupthink with these the D.C. press corps types. There is no think it is rote recitation of lines. Savannah Guthrie's questions were in the form of, you know, spin the Twitterverse and land on any never Trumper. And uh, their 140 characters of snark. Now put that into a question and fired it off at the president, which is why you spent, she spent, the first 15 to 20 minutes of an hour-long, allegedly, town hall with questions from Americans. 
including some undecided voters, the first 15 to 20 minutes of it on white supremacy and, you know, Twitter conspiracies uh, first, as expected. You've done this to Why me does everybody. it seem like? I denounce white supremacy, okay? You did I've two denounced days later. white supremacy for years, but you always do it. You always start off with a well, question. You didn't ask Joe Biden whether or not he denounces Antifa. I watched him on the same basic show with Lester Holt. And he was asking questions like Biden was a child. Well, well so this so is a little bit ready? of a dodge. Are you, wait, are you listening? I denounce white supremacy. Okay. What's your next question? Do you feel, it feels sometimes you're hesitant to do so. Like you hesitant. wait a bit. Here we go again. Every time, in fact, my people came. I'm sure they'll ask you the white supremacy question. I denounce white supremacy. Okay. And frankly, you want to know something? I denounce Antifa, and I denounce these people on the left that are burning down our cities that are run by Democrats who don't right, know what they're doing. Yeah, um, it, it would have been fun if he said, you know, I, I know I'm going to get this question because, you know what, everybody gets this question from leftists, whether they are pretending to be journalists or they're a formal actors or activists or street thugs. Everybody's a white supremacist. When you ask me that question, you're saying, I disagree with you, President Trump. Let me prove my point. Amy Coney Barrett, with two adopted children from Haiti, was asked by one of your ideological fellow travelers, Senator Cory Booker, whether or not she renounces white supremacy. Everybody who is a conservative is a white supremacist. That's the identitarian ideology. If you disagree with us, then you're a racist. You, you are suffering from all of the isms and all of the phobias. I wish he would just go on point and not do so much of the whataboutism. You can get to that because it's absolutely a legitimate point to raise. You don't ask Joe Biden to denounce the thuggery happening under the banner of Black Lives Matter, whether it's white people or black people on the streets of America's cities, that's ongoing. Ongoing. A Seattle police car burned with cops in the car initially just the other day. It's not stopped. It's just the coverage of it has stopped. It's just remarkable. And then from there, you go to QAnon. Now, can you just once and for all state that that is completely not true? So disavow QAnon yeah. in its entirety? I know nothing about QAnon. I know about Antifa and I know about the radical left and I know how violent they are and how vicious they are. And I know how they are burning down cities run by Democrats, not run Republican by Republicans. Republican Senator Ben Sass said, quote, QAnon is nuts and real leaders call conspiracy theories conspiracy theories. Why not right. just say it's crazy and not? He may be right. I just don't know about QAnon. You do know. I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't know. You Let me ask me you another thing. It. Let's waste the whole show. Uh, you start off with white supremacy. I denounce it. You start off with something else. Let's go. Keep asking me these questions. Okay. I but, do have but, one let, more. Let me, just, let me just tell you what I do hear about it is they are very strongly against pedophilia. And I agree with that. I mean, I do agree okay. with that. And I agree but with that. But there's it not a satanic uh, pedophile. I have no idea. Run, I know you don't know that? that? Uh, it's so absurd. This protestation from Savannah Guthrie. Uh, you do know that. No, I don't know that. You do know that. Where, where does that go? President Trump, actually, I would have uh, rather he just pulled out of it and said, look, you know, almost turned to the camera. Dramatic Joe Biden style and say, you see what this is? You know, and admittedly, sometimes he doesn't keep his eye on the prize and making and, 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 and is not disciplined, making the main thing the main thing, including with some of his retweets. OK, but nonetheless, this is what I'm talking about. Trump to the American people. I am in the same position as I was in 2016 politically. We're in a much better position as a country in so many respects, pre-COVID in particular, thanks to the policy choices. But politically, we're in the same position. The political ruling class 
inside the beltway, media types like Miss Guthrie here, the establishment propping up Joe Biden and attaching uh, a the most radical United States senator in the United States with him to chaperone him. This is a repeat of 2016. I am the challenger. I'm the incumbent president, but I'm the challenger to the established order in Washington, D.C. So if you 56 percent of people who think your things are better than they were four years ago, uh, you who wanted to send a message to these men and women of always inside the beltway, they haven't received the message. That's what this is about. And they want me to go down these rabbit holes of Twitter handles you've never heard of, conspiracy theories, renounce white supremacy for the 50, 50 millionth time. I mean, I've, I'm 74 years old. If I was a white supremacist, I think the uh, they would be able to compile the evidence. I wasn't a white supremacist when I was being feted by Jesse Jackson and Rainbow Push in the 80s in New York City. And I'm not now. And it's ridiculous. All you have to do is look at my policies. And frankly, all you have to do is look at the support I'm getting from black Americans. It's not a majority, but it's certainly a, a substantial number. And it's more than most Republicans have enjoyed uh, in uh, recent generations. I wish he would have just gone on a riff to just tear down this specious line of questioning that starts from fallacious premises. It would have been uh, so much stronger. And, and still, we're not on policy. Still, we're not on policy. We're back to one of the other, you know, Internet memes, which is where Savannah Guthrie gets her thoughts, apparently. You know, peaceful transfer of power, Mr. President. You've been equivocating on it. And they tried to take down a duly elected sitting president. And then they talk about, will you accept a peaceful transfer? And the answer is, yes, I will. But I want it to be an honest election. And so does everybody else. When I see thousands of ballots dumped in a garbage can and they happen to have my name on it, I'm not happy okay, about that. Yeah. And in response to that, Savannah Guthrie, what did she say? No evidence of, quote unquote, widespread voter fraud in response to Trump's specific, albeit anecdotal, examples of voter fraud. It's just that that's another example of the ruling class mentality that I'm speaking of and he should be speaking of. What constitutes widespread, Savannah? Whose vote is it okay to take away? Yours? Why aren't you concerned about it? Uh, We want an honest election. Uh, You and your friends support policies that make it easier to commit fraud. That becomes a problem. Now we have specific examples of it, including the administration of elections that have been catastrophic in Patterson, New Jersey and New York State, just to name two examples. So don't talk to me about peaceful transfer of power like I'm the issue. I'm not the issue. Uh, Obama broke the, the Obama administration broke the president peaceful transfer of power when they weaponized spy agencies and the chief law enforcement, federal law enforcement agency in the country against me. And they tried to undo the election surreptitiously for the last three and a half years. Don't talk to me about peaceful transfer of power. I'm fine with the election results either way. But I want to protect people's votes, the sanctity of the vote. If you don't want your franchise taken away, why is it why are you so dismissive of the prospect of anybody else's being taken away? Savannah, put it right back on these folks. They are so intellectually defenseless. Coming up, we're going to continue our discussion on the town halls uh, with somebody who is uh, anything but intellectually defenseless. That is VDH, Victor Davis Hanson from the Hoover Institution right after the break. Show.com.
Welcome back to the show. Continuing our discussion of the uh, siloed town halls yesterday, Trump on NBC and Biden on ABC, and again, uh, the nonpartisan, quote-unquote, presidential debate commission, uh, nowhere to be found in terms of explaining how uh, President Trump could clear NBC's medical standards to do a town hall with their prized possession, Savannah Guthrie, in Miami, where the debate was scheduled. But they couldn't make the necessary adjustments to put the two gentlemen on a stage together for the presidential debate that had been agreed upon. It's uh, troubling. Now, (laughs) equally troubling is that uh, maybe they would have had to find yet another new moderator as um, Steve Scully, C-SPAN, who was to moderate the second debate, the town hall style debate that was to take place in Miami where President Trump was, has been suspended indefinitely for admitting that he lied about his Twitter account being hacked as it pertains to uh, uh, tweets back and forth with the mooch, Tony Scaramucci. I mean, can you make this stuff up? Steve Scully is sort of a nondescript, you know, C-SPAN political editor forever. Um, Brett Baer even defended him on our show last week, and I I didn't find him particularly offensive, even though I knew he had, uh, you know, he's a Democrat and he had worked for Democrats like Ted Kennedy. I get it. Fine. He seemed rather inoffensive in terms of his C-SPAN work. This is the, the craziness that uh, I don't know Trump drives people to who don't uh, don't like him, I guess. And so now Steve Scully is the 2020 award winner of the best Jesse Smollett. This is MAGA country performance. Uh, it's just uh, amazing to me. Amazing to me. But it also speaks to something that uh, Victor Davis Hanson recently wrote about which is uh, what happens when something is politicized or some institution is politicized. For more on that, we're pleased to be joined by VDH, Victor Davis Hanson, classicist and historian at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, and the author of The Second World War is How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. VDH, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So uh, Steve Scully, the latest domino to fall when it comes to the pollution of uh, civic and cultural institutions in the West, in America specifically. Yeah, I think he is. It wasn't just that he lied. It was that he lied in a, in a fashion that had become very familiar to all of us when we think of Anderson Cooper or uh, Anthony Weiner or Joy Reid. So that I was hacked now has become sort of the mostly left-wing defense for a gaffe, and we all know it. What was unusual, though, I didn't think really that the the Federal Commission on Presidential Debates or C-SPAN or even, you know, Chris Wallace at Fox would all jump in and and vouch for his honesty and integrity, and this is um, impossible, but they did without any evidence. They didn't wait for any investigation or anything. So, yeah, it's part of this pattern that we're seeing with, the disinterest or the uninterest, I should say, with a Hunter Biden troll uh, or the fact that Joe Biden pretty much has now been caught lying through his teeth when he said he'd never met these Ukrainian operatives or, uh, you know, what was Jim, why, why was the FBI having this hard drive for, I guess, months at a very time when the evidence might have had some bearing on the impeachment process. And this is the FBI that had outsourced earlier the Hillary Clinton hard drive to CrowdStrike, who winked and nodded for two years that it proved that it was Russian uh, who had hacked it. And then we find out that, in fact, 
the president of CrowdStrike had already testified under oath that he had no evidence of this Russia. I, we could go on, but I think yeah. I, I guess the pattern is that how is it going to affect the electorate? And I there's two views. One is that people are going to look at what the NBA is doing and what the media is doing, what the debate commission is doing, what Twitter is doing, what Facebook is doing, and they're going to say, this is so biased, I'm so sick of it. And then I'm not going to say anything, but that 15% who's still undecided of the electorate will vote for Trump, or they'll look at the riots and the quarantine, and, and they'll say, you know, they'll put their hands over their ears and go into a fetal position and say, I don't know who caused this. I just can't take it anymore, but maybe Biden will get me out of it somehow. And that's the $64,000 question. Which reaction is going to be stronger with that undecided? And then once we see where that moves, these states will start to fall one way or the other like dominoes. So I think the Electoral College is going to be pretty clearly on one side. I think it's going to be Trump because I think a lot of people, it depends on how visible uh, Biden is in the next two weeks, two and a half weeks. For yeah. him to be out in the public is to lose support. For him to open his mouth is to lose support. Uh, when we come back with Victor Davis Hanson, yeah. I want to get uh, his reaction to some comments that Nebraska Senator Ben Sass made in a uh, call with constituents about the president and about what may come after President Trump. Uh, more with VDH right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Nebraska Senator Ben Sass. You saw him. He's on the Senate Judiciary Committee, so you saw him this week in the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings. Uh, he has uh, pretty much been a never Trumper even though he's from a, a, a deep red state that's very much a pro-Trump state. And he recently did a, uh, you know, teletown hall with his constituents, as politicians are wont to do. And he was asked about his on-again, off-again support for President Trump. He answered thusly. And these aren't just mere policy issues. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not at all apologetic for having fought for my values against his in places where I think his um, are deficient, not just for, for a Republican, but for an American. So the, the way he kisses dictators' butts, I mean, the way he um, ignores that the Uyghurs are in literal concentration camps in Xinjiang right now. He hasn't lifted a, a finger on behalf of the Hong Kongers. I mean, he and I have a very different foreign policy. It isn't just that he fails to lead our allies. It's that we, the United States now regularly sells out our allies under his leadership. The way he treats women and spends like a, a drunken sailor, the ways I criticize President Obama for that kind of spending, I've criticized President Trump for as well. He, and Sass went on to say here's what he fears, that uh, having uh, sold America, President Trump, uh, will actually move America wildly left if uh, Joe Biden wins, if Democrats get control of the Senate, uh, which it sounds like he expects. We should distinguish between policy and politics, because my dissents um, from President Trump are not only about policy, but it's also a prudential question or a political question about whether or not he's ultimately driving the country further to the left, because that's what I think is ultimately going to happen because of Donald Trump. This has been my fear um, for five years. It's why I campaigned for everybody not named Trump in, in 2016, 
and that is because I think folks have have regularly misunderstood the meaning of 2016. Donald Trump didn't win the presidency um, because America actually wants more reality TV, round-the-clock, stupid political obsessions. I, I just don't think that that's what my neighbors want. It's not what I hear when I travel the state. I've spent lots of the of the last year um, on a campaign bus, and when you listen to Nebraskans, they don't really want more rage tweeting um, as a new form of entertainment. Victor Davis Hansen of the Hoover Institution, author of uh, The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. Uh, VDH, uh, firing line style, I now turn it over to you for a rebuttal. Yeah, I think what he misses is what they don't want are politicians who say one thing publicly and another privately. That was a private phone call. He obviously didn't want to be public. If he did, he could say the same thing tomorrow at a press conference, but he won't because when he was going to fear of being primary, he asked for Trump support, which Trump gave him. And uh, so the other thing about that line of criticism, there's never specifics to the way he treats his allies. So I'm thinking, okay, you're going to go over to Germany and you're going to say, you know, it's okay. We, for 12, 20 years, we've asked you to pay the 2%. You won't do it, but that's okay. That's okay with that big $10 billion gas deal with Putin. We have no problem with it. Or he can say Uyghurs, Hong Kong, but what was exactly the policy not just of Barack Obama, but of John McCain and Mitt Romney and the Republican establishment vis-a-vis China. It was to empower China and manage so-called decline on our part. So here he's criticizing a president who most people in the world feel has been too tough on China and too confrontational. And when he says he kisses the blank blank of dictators, well, maybe he does say things in the art of the deal fashion, but if you want to look at the degree of sanctions that we put on North Korea vis-a-vis what was there before under Obama or vis-a-vis Iran, what was there before, or what we've done with Russia. I mean, my gosh, we sold lethal weapons to Ukraine. We killed 200 Russian mercenaries in Syria. We got out of an asymmetrical missile deal. We crashed the Russian oil markets by fracking. We've done almost, we've put higher sanctions on Putin's people. We're trying to bring back the missile defense in Eastern Europe that Obama gave away for his own political benefits. So what I'm getting at, I guess, Dan, is that there's never any actual, there's this claim that I have these problems with his politics, but then there's these vague generalities. And he never gives specifics because Donald Trump's um, fingerprints are on them. And if Donald Trump's fingerprints are on any policy, then the policy itself must be bad. And we're always, and they do this off the record. Does he really think that in 2016 that the McCain-Romney paradigm was going to win Michigan and it was going to win Wisconsin right. and Pennsylvania? And no, I don't think it was. It was dead because it wrote off about 10 million people in the interior of the country as losers, and it was not that distinguishable from the Democratic position. Well, also, so I think he's really. He, I don't see the future for a person like that. Maybe in Nebraska, he can get. Um, he'll get reelected in Nebraska, but maybe he won't be primaried next time. But I just don't think that the George Wills and the David Froms and the Bill Crystal and the Jeff Flakes, all of these people are going to come after November and say, "We got wiped out. They didn't listen to us." So here's the phoenix rising out of the ashes, and we're going to guide you back to Romneyism. I just don't think that's going to happen. Right. And, you know, the, the other thing about um, uh, Sass's uh, line of argumentation, in addition to not being specific about the criticisms, is specific about the policy that you're criticizing, uh, what specifically would you do differently? 
Um, they also don't have uh, they don't have the answer to that. What I would do instead. I mean, I'm all for trying to prevent genocides wherever they occur, whether it's in Rwanda uh, or Sudan or in China. But it's not just so easy to wish something wasn't the case and then to actually affect it to not be the case in a, in a complicated relationship, geo, complicated geopolitics of, of, of China and, you know, the world's largest army, for example. And so well, that's a, no, that's an, you know, an excellent point. That's exactly what Obama did with reset with Russia. We had Mike McFaul, the ambassador, go over there and wag his finger at Putin every day about human rights violation and then not do one thing because he couldn't do one thing. He didn't. Obama, I don't blame him, but it wasn't like we were going to go to war over Crimea or eastern Ukraine. But they didn't even sell an anti-tank weapon to Ukraine to protect the Ukraine. So they, the worst combination is to sh- shake her finger at a dictator and criticize him for, for being morally inept or ethically repugnant and then not do anything it's like, like drawing the line drawing the line yeah. on assad and not manning that line exactly exactly it's yelling really loudly with a little t- carrying a twig and that's what that's what they've done with china as well with human rights it doesn't do anything it doesn't do anything at all uh, good to yell at china about human rights unless you're going to take a holistic approach and say you know what economically and politically we're going to isolate this this monstrous communist party and we're going to prevent it from reaching world hegemony he is VD, he is vdh victor davis hansen classicist and historian at the hoover institution stanford university author of the second world wars how the first global conflict was fought and won vdh always a pleasure thank you thank you for having me okay. how are we how i wish you were here The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show and to to close out the week on Amy Coney Barrett and a a strong week that she had. Uh, Thursday, of course, was witness testimony. And one of the witnesses was Laura Woke. We spoke about her uh, per an op-ed she wrote after Amy Coney Barrett was nominated, her experience with Professor Barrett at Notre Dame Law School, where Laura Woke was a student. And uh, she was one who testified on behalf of Amy Coney Barrett yesterday. And, well, let uh, Laura Woke speak for herself, share her relationship with Amy Coney Barrett and what that says about uh, Judge Barrett. In part because of her unwavering support, I am the first blind woman to serve as a law clerk on the Supreme Court of the United States. It is now my immense privilege to appear before you in support of Judge Barrett's nomination to that same great institution. You have heard over the past few days about Judge Barrett's judicial qualities, which are beyond reproach. But should you confirm Amy Barrett, the country will receive something far greater than simply an unparalleled legal mind. It will gain the service of one of the kindest individuals I have ever known. Her brilliance is matched only by her compassion, and her integrity is unassailable. I'm not speaking in mere abstractions here. Rather, I have experienced these characteristics firsthand with life-changing results. Because I am completely blind, I rely heavily on assistive technology to compete on a level playing field with my sighted peers. Before arriving at Notre Dame Law School in 2013, I worked hard to ensure that the university would purchase backup copies of the technology I use. But upon arrival, 
I discovered that bureaucratic glitches left me without access to that technology. And on cue, my personal laptop immediately began to fail. Overnight, I found myself struggling to keep up in class, falling increasingly behind with each passing hour. I needed help, and I needed it fast. I'd been Judge Barrett's student only for a few weeks, but her graciousness and warmth gave me hope that she could provide me with that assistance. Even so, I maintained relatively low expectations. Based on my past experience, I assumed that Judge Barrett would simply direct me to the proper bureaucratic channels, which could still take weeks, if not longer, to navigate. But Judge Barrett did something altogether different. She silently listened with deep attention as I explained my situation, giving me the freedom to let down my guard and come apart. As a disabled person, I am accustomed to acting as if I have everything under control, when in reality the world feels like it is spinning out from under me. But in front of Judge Barrett, I was able to let the mask slip and indeed to disappear completely. I poured out all my concerns, not just about technology and my worries about failing classes, but all the burdens I currently carried as a disabled woman navigating a brand new environment. When I finished, Judge Barrett leaned forward and looked at me intently. Laura, she said, with the same measured conviction that we have seen displayed throughout her entire nomination process, this is no longer your problem. It's my problem. Hmm. Laura Woke is now an appellate attorney, maybe in 20 or 30 years. She'll be a nominee to the Supreme Court, and she'll be accused by Chris Coons or DiFi, who I'm sure will still be in the Senate, of being a mini ACB, the way ACB was accused of being a mini Scalia all week. This is Dan Proud. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. Website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. DiFi was uh, doing so well for the uh, entirety of the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearing before Senate Judiciary, but um, she just couldn't bite her tongue when uh, the committee broke up and she was just talking to her colleagues. She should know better than to be talking in a room with that many mics that are hot. She's been pro-life for a long time. So I suspected her is a deep person. She's been pro-life for a long time. I suspect with her it's deeply personal. It comes with her religion. Not exactly the dogma lives loudly within you, but uh, a uh, toned-down version of it. So still a problem with Amy Coney Barrett. They were loath to go after her faith in public because they understood the political consequences, the political risk of doing that. But they're not afraid to be who they really are when they think they're speaking confidentially. Isn't that interesting? For more on uh, the week that was with respect to the confirmation hearing and uh, all other things swirling around the two campaigns at this juncture, 
after the town halls last night. We're pleased to be joined again by Dominic Green, Life and Arts Editor, Spectator USA. Dominic, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hello, Dan. So, um, you know, Die Fi and uh, Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar clowning themselves for a couple of days. But but otherwise, your sort of uh, top line review of the last four days. Well, certainly they didn't blow it, put it that way. They didn't create a situation where the Republicans could say, you know, the Democrats are the party that hate religion. So, you know, as a bottom line, that was a great success. But in terms of uh, actually putting forward something positive, that wasn't happening. I, this was done through gritted teeth. The Democrats are furious, of course, that the seat that we played against Berglec is being filled. And uh, we haven't yet, of course, got to the big reveal, which uh, Joe Biden is promising. He'll finally tell us what his position on court packing, he told us last night. We'll know when we will know when we've seen how things are. And that's the kind of clear and articulate policy making. <laughs> we can afford to a lot more. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it could, he couldn't have been more clear, Dominic, that uh, when they do something, he will have to react to that. And so we look forward to that, that occurring, coming to pass. Yeah, and he did his, his usual move when, when asked what his opinion was about anything. He says, well, I'm not going to tell you because then the story will be about what Biden says rather than what Trump is. And this is embarrassing because, you know, an election is generally contested on policies and ideas. Mm -hmm. The idea of saying, well, just give me a vote and I'll see how I feel about things on November the 4th. Uh, you know, that's no way to. Well, and, and oh, by the way, here we are talking about Joe Biden not wanting us to talk about his position on court backing. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's these uh, polls that I agree with you, many of which are misleading. And then there's actually what's happening. It's sort of like our conversation with COVID. There's these models, and then we're supposed to ignore what's actually happening on the ground. Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio. Let I me mean, remember the push is for Democrats to do the mail-in ballot. Go out and vote right away, right now. Nine million people have voted. And, you know, ostensibly, it's like, these are our people. Not exactly. In Michigan, as of Wednesday this week, just over a million ballots have been returned. 40% from registered Democrats, 40% from registered Republicans. In Wisconsin, 40% have been from Democrats, 38% from Republicans. In Ohio, 45% for Republicans, 43% for Democrats. I, I said this for weeks now. You know, despite uh, concerns, legitimate concerns for the push mail in voting campaigns by some states some blue state governors that uh, this whole mail in ballot thing in a variety of ways could turn out to uh, hoist the Democrats by their own petard. I think it could. And I just want to say, I believe you, Dan. I think so. I think there is um, a great advantage if you're, say, the Republicans and you have um, usually get more older voters. At the time when people are being told, don't go outside unless you have to, if you're a senior, it does make logical sense that you're going to get a high Republican mail-in turnout. And you combine that with the figures of voter registration in places like Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, too. The Republicans have made enormous advances in registration. You put those two things together and we are in back where we always are, which is this is a pretty much equally divided public. And as I say, if somebody votes on the economy, they will probably vote for Trump. And if somebody votes because they don't like his balance, or they believe some of the things that are being said about them, then they're going to vote for Biden. But I do believe it's going to go down to the wire. We're going to all have a very late night on the 3rd of November. And it's quite possibly going to go on from there to the courts for a good six weeks after that. President Trump, before the town hall last night, was on with Stuart Varney on Fox Business. And he opined on the New York Post story about Hunter Biden's computer and the contents allegedly contained on the hard drive of that computer. And since uh, that's the last time anybody was asked about uh, the New York Post story in terms of the presidential candidates, because apparently it's not an issue for either Savannah Guthrie or George Stephanopoulos. Here's, the pre- here's what the president had to say to Varney. Look, they have the guy's laptop. Hey, 
Hunter was a disaster. Hunter didn't have a job. Hunter got thrown out of the military. You know why he got thrown out, okay? He was thrown out of the military, didn't have a job, didn't have anything. His father becomes VP, and then Hunter starts making millions and millions of dollars a year. Dominic, uh, not exactly the level of detail I'd like from the president, uh, uh, but uh, he's directionally correct, is he not? Well, yeah, there are two or three things to say here. One is this, that this story has not been denied by the Biden campaign. Nobody has come forward with any proof or even suggestion about these emails being false. The second thing is that the story by which this laptop came to be in the repair shop and how it ended up with Rudy Giuliani via the FBI, that is a rum story in itself. And uh, we should wonder how that came to pass. And the third thing, of course, is the completely disgraceful behavior of Twitter and Facebook, which simply decided that because this was bad for their man, they weren't going to allow people to read it. And we've got ourselves into a situation where the public square is effectively run by a handful of people living in castles in Silicon Valley. And they are, to be fair to them, and it's hard to be fair to them, of course, but we have to be. To be fair, they're in a position they never really wanted. They wanted money and and so on. What came out of that was power and then even responsibility. And they've become responsible for guaranteeing the, the probity of the election. And of course, they are bungling it at every step of the way. But the behavior that we saw this week is the sort of behavior that goes on in petty dictatorships when uh, you know the internet goes down when there's an election or the opposition suddenly <laughs> find the lights are turned off in their offices this is no more or less than that and it's absolutely scandalous now the uh, social media companies spend millions bribing everybody in congress so that no laws are passed to limit them and so they're still protected by section 230 as if they're the phone company but it's very clear it's almost comically clear if you start selecting what can and cannot appear on your platform, well, that's called publishing. That's what newspapers do. It's what they do for radio or for television. And it's what social media does. And if they did want to get regulated, this is the fastest way to do it. And, of course, Josh Hawley has already called for it. Um, and President Trump has already put out you know, an executive order uh, assigning Congress to do something, to pass some laws. And if you look at the terms of that executive order, what happened this week is absolutely the kind of breach that he was talking about. This is the kind of thing that if it went on in, in any other country, we'd be sending you know, teams of people to the, to the polls to make sure that the election wasn't completely robbed. It's astonishing that this would happen. Yeah, I, no, I, I was just going to say, it's such a contrast this week from all of the, uh, the antics from these, you know, these blue ribbon commissions like the nonpartisan presidential debate commission and uh, the press corps, including Steve Scully at C-SPAN being suspended for lying about his Twitter account being hacked. Uh, all of all of these actors inside the political bubble, the, the senators who beclown themselves during the Amy Coney Barrett hearing, contrast almost everybody in Washington to Amy Coney Barrett, as Peggy Noonan sort of did in her piece in The Wall Street Journal, a saying of Amy Coney Barrett, this is not a child, a sentimentalist, an ideological warrior. This is a thinker who thinks about reality. In her independence from partisan politics, in her live faith and higher persons, spirits and principles, this is a rather dangerous woman, and she's sane. And she may be the only one in D.C. when she's confirmed who can fit that description. Well, I wish I'd written that, and I probably will. It's very true. It, it's spot on. She came across as the only adult in the room, the only one with any uh, really deep convictions. Whatever you thought of them, someone who at least understood what the job was about and understood how the law worked. It, it's um, and it's something we've seen over and over again at the at these kind of hearings. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, when he explained that Facebook made money by advertising, 
particularly low point, you have to <laughs> wonder, what have these people been doing? Why, why have they not been paying the slightest attention to what is going on around them? Yeah, so, uh, yes, I got uh, it. It was, yeah. it was a, a good thing for the Republic, in fact, that uh, Amy Coney Barrett made such a good showing and that there's no reason to think she won't get through when the vote is held. Um, but every other symptom of, of public life in Washington, D.C., just makes you think, what is going to happen next? Because... The- uh, it, it, there is nobody capable of things of, of taking charge or acting responsibly. The only good news for families, American families out there, is they must look at that hearing and say, if Amy Klobuchar can go to University of Chicago Law School, so can anybody. So could my kids. Uh, Dominic Green, <laughs> Life and Arts Editor, Spectator USA. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Returning to uh, the dueling town halls last night, the Stephanopoulos Biden one on ABC. Joe Biden, did he accidentally endorse the reopening of all schools for in-person learning while he was uh, holding forth on mask wearing. Take a listen. We're now learning that children are getting the virus, not with as as serious consequences, but we haven't, there's been no studies done yet on vaccines for children. So there's a long way to go, but we can make progress in the meantime and save lives. And last point I'll make, if you if you listen to the head of the of the CDC, he stood up and he said, you know, while we're waiting for a vaccine, he held up a mask. You wear this mask, you'll save more lives between now and the end of the year than if we had a vaccine than if we had a vaccine. It's estimated by every major study done from the University of Washington to Columbia that if, in fact, we wore masks, we could save between now and the end of the year 100,000 lives. And avoid lockdowns? And and avoid lockdown, yes. You don't have to lock down if you're wearing the mask. Oh, that piece of it. Uh, We'll get to the masks in a second, but that piece of it. You don't have to lock down if you're wearing masks. Uh, Nice follow-up. That wasn't asked. Of course, it wasn't asked. Okay, well, then if you make a mask requirement, then businesses should be operating 100 percent capacity, not being phased in and schools should be reopened for in-person learning. Doesn't that logically follow? Maybe our next guest can answer the question that was never asked of Joe Biden. It would have been interesting to see him try to answer it. Dr. Joel Zinberg, he's an MD and JD, senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in D.C. and an associate clinical professor of surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Dr. Zinberg, thanks for joining us again. Can you uh, help me with that question? Vis-a-vis the masks versus yeah. vaccines? Yeah, well, no, if, if you, he, Joe Biden's uh, pronouncement, if uh, you wear masks, you don't need a lockdown. Well, look, I mean, I and others have been saying for a long time you don't need a lockdown because, you know, it's not very effective and it cripples the economy and it and it has all sorts of other terrible health effects when people put off treatment for treatable conditions and for diagnosing their cancers. So, no, I, I don't think you need You don't need a lockdown, period. The masks would certainly uh, go a long way to even alleviating any other disease you'd have from covid uh, without the lockdown. So, sure, sure, I think the answer is yes. If people wore a mask, you do not lead a lockdown. Okay, well, it'd be nice to get Joe Biden on the record uh, answering that question, too, because that would be sort of a game-changer if that's the position that the Democrats adopted. It doesn't seem to be their position at present. 
I wanted to I wanted to get uh, your reaction to something else. This is a bit esoteric, and so uh, it's good that we have an expert on. Uh, but it's important in terms of pursuing a vaccine as if, as quickly as possible. And you've written extensively in Operation Warp Speed as well. Uh, this exchange between Tyler Cohen, who's an economist at George Mason, and um, uh, a uh, uh, Derek Lowe, who's a, 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 a chemist in the business of uh, developments of drugs. And uh, the question surrounds accepting foreign trial data, like the AstraZeneca trials that are going on, AstraZeneca in, in the UK, but I think the trial is actually being administered in Brazil. Uh, accepting foreign trial data and human challenge trials for the uh, to expedite the development of a vaccine in this country. Uh, Tyler Cohen is a proponent of it, and others are less enthusiastic about accepting foreign trial data. I'm not talking about Russia. I'm talking about Western nations like the U.K. Uh, What do you say to that? Is that a route to expedite trial development uh, for those uh, undergoing uh, phase three trials now, those potential vaccines? Trials, whether they're for vaccines or for drugs, are often conducted around the world. And then you have to see who is conducting the trial. A reputable outfit like an AstraZeneca, that's one thing. If it's an outfit like the Chinese government or the Russian government, that's quite a a different story. Mm -hmm. So I I think, you know, I I think between the fact that you're dealing with a, a reputable pharmaceutical manufacturer and the FDA is closely reviewing that data, I think, you know, we could have some confidence that that if if those trials are are done and they seem to indicate that the vaccine is safe and effective, uh, that we could rely on that. And you have to understand, they're not just doing trials in Brazil. They're doing trials in the UK. They're doing trials in the US. Japan, South Africa. Right. No, right. So if you have a trial that in in Brazil that gives you completely different results than elsewhere in the world, that's going to stand out and that vaccine is not going to be approved based solely on the on the trial in Brazil. Right. And and but but uh, the the re- the reporting on this uh out of Brazil is uh, since the resumption uh of the AstraZeneca trials in Brazil, uh, 4600 of the planned 5000 volunteers have been vaccinated without any of them reporting serious health issues. Now again, that's not uh, dispositive of the entire process, but it's uh, a good indicator. Right. No, no. They, look, the the fact of the matter is with any vaccine, any drug that's developed, they test large numbers of people, but you know the fa- when the drug is actually approved and out on the market, many more people than were in the trials are actually going to use it. So in the case of a vaccine, we're talking about millions of people. So you may have some extremely rare side effect that didn't show up in a trial that will show up later on. But that's precisely why they do uh, post-approval surveys and, and surveillance, so they, they can pick those things up later on. But they're doing, you know, 30,000, 40,000 people in a trial, and anything that's common is likely going to be uh, picked up in that. Uh, I wanted to get your reaction to uh, what Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, uh, had to say in uh, a conversation with Jewish leaders in New York City uh, in response to the lockdown policies that they're now uh, preparing to litigate against the state of New York and the city of New York City. Uh, we played this on the show yesterday, this audio that was captured from that conference call in which Cuomo basically said, look, uh, we're having to do things that are not smart because people are afraid and we're going to have to do things that are not smart for a little while longer until people are less afraid and then we can do smart things. That's essentially what he argued and uh, your reaction to that. 
Right. Well, I mean, I think the term the, the Governor Cuomo used was fear. We're dealing with fear. Uh, and, and this is from a guy who's, who's consistently said he's following the science and everyone else is appealing to emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think it, it, almost, it, it almost speaks for itself that, you know, that he, he has another agenda uh, that includes publishing a book where he tries to uh, explain away the failures of, of how New York State dealt with the pandemic in the spring. Uh, and uh, this is just part of that. Well, I, but it, it is sort of a remarkable uh, uh, admission for somebody who has pursued lockdown policies to say basically that uh, we're doing this because people are afraid. Now, you can also ask the question, well, why are they afraid? Is it because of politicians like you that are suggesting the that uh, that this is more apocalyptic than it really is? But but even uh, separating that people are afraid. So we're going to do things we know are are overreactions until we can get to a place where people are less anxious and then we can do smarter public policy. I mean, that, that's a that's a remarkable admission about the judiciousness of the lockdown policies that he and other politicians have pursued. Right. He's admitting it's being done for theatrical purposes, <laughs> not for following the science, but to, so that he can appear uh, to be doing something and appear like a strong leader. Uh, another topic that wasn't raised in either of yesterday's town halls uh, by the candidates or the moderators, I think, to the detriment of the public discussion on this topic. And that that, may, that doesn't require any comment. That's sort of a statement of fact, I think. Uh, he, he is Dr. Joel Zinberg, M.D., J.D., Senior Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in D.C. and an Associate Clinical Professor of Surgery at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Dr. Zinberg, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Sure thing. My pleasure. Take care. Podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So, Twitter has reversed course. Twitter uh, apologizing uh, for the firm's handling of uh, the blocking of the New York Post story about Hunter Biden emails, alleged Hunter Biden emails. Jack Dorsey tweeting out. Uh, yeah, we not good was the handling of it, which, among other things, saw Trump press secretary Kaylee McEnany and the official Trump campaign banned from Twitter for a period of time. The um, person in charge with uh, legal policy and safety at Twitter announced yesterday, last night, that it now has changed its approach to what it deems, quote unquote, hacked content and how it shares on the platform. They will now label suspect stories with warnings rather than stopping them from being shared outright. We want to address the concerns that there could be many unintended consequences to journalists, whistleblowers and others in ways that are contrary to Twitter's purpose of serving the public conversation. Sure, exactly. You don't want The New York Times to have their Trump tax return story spiked because the information was obtained illicitly, perhaps by somebody, not not necessarily New York Times, but by somebody who then turned it over to The New York Times. How else do you get IRS data other than illicitly? So um, they're not going to remove hack content unless it is directly shared by hackers or those acting in concert with hackers. So now Twitter's going to have an investigative arm, I guess, to determine who the hackers are and who is acting in concert with hackers in a particular story. We will label tweets to provide context instead of blocking links from being shared on Twitter. Well, I don't think that is going to change the posture of Senate Republicans like Ted Cruz, who want to have Twitter executives 
and ostensibly Facebook, too, before the Senate next week, Friday, subpoenaing their testimony. Ted Cruz was on Fox yesterday talking to Harris Faulkner about the issue. Twitter and Facebook, they don't do this for all of the attacks on Donald Trump. You know, the New York Times claims to have his tax records, wrote article after article about them. Twitter and Facebook didn't block you from tweeting on that. The Steele dossier now totally debunked all sorts of scurrilous sex allegations about the president. People tweet about that all the time. But when it comes to Joe Biden, Twitter has decided that they are using their multi-billion dollar monopoly power to try to silence all discussion and keep the voters ignorant. It, it, it is, big tech censorship has always been bad, but they really crossed a line in the last 24 hours. I'm not aware of their previously actively censoring major press outlets. It's, it's, not, it's not really any different than Twitter so, blocking Fox News from sending out a story. Look, Fox News may be right or wrong, the New York Post may be right or wrong, but silencing the media is a direct violation of the principles of the First Amendment. We're seeing Silicon Valley build Billionaires, frankly, drunk with power. Well, here's the thing. It's 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 more complicated. By the way, I would challenge the notion that Twitter has monopoly power, as Ted Cruz said. He's I think he knows better. I think he's being a bit bombastic on the topic, not about big tech's power, but just that specific statement. The other matter in terms of this censoring the press, again, the First Amendment is restraint on government, not private actors when it comes to censoring expression. And so it is a much different case until and unless you want to sort of categorize these big tech companies as public utilities of some sort, which some are arguing. And, you know, big tech back in the news just a couple of weeks before the election, when we had such a run up to big tech's possible influence in this election outcome that was sort of completely ignored, other than me intermittently on this show, or at least re-raising the testimony we heard before the Senate last year from our friend Dennis Prager, from uh, Harvard-educated psychiatrist Bob Epstein about the manipulation of Google searches by Google, about the impact that he assessed big tech could have if they worked in concert to try and drive a particular election outcome, like the ability to move 20 million votes. Anyway, let's discuss this with our friend Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, Fox News contributor, author of The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United and Free. Rich, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So what about this uh, sort of late in the game seizing of this opportunity that Twitter and Facebook have presented by their ever-changing policies on what uh, stays up and what comes down? It's just appalling. It's hard to believe. I'm friends with Sora Bamaria, an editor in the New York Post, and mm-hmm. Mike Palmans in the Post, he edits me. And when I first saw his tweet, it's a screen cap of a link to the Post story being blocked by Twitter. I was like, really? This isn't like some glitch? This really happened? And then I tried to tweet it myself, and sure enough, I couldn't. This is just outrageous. Whether you think the New York Post story is nailed down or not, or whether it's bogus or not, it's a legitimate subject of public debate, and people should be able to read it and argue about it and decide for themselves. And this is clearly just Twitter putting its thumb on the scale in a way that's deeply disturbing. And just to Ted Cruz's point, it shows these people have too much power. I'm not sure what you do about it exactly, but this was appalling. And and it's good that Twitter's backed off. But the fact is they they can do it. We've seen they they will do it. And there's no guarantee, you know, they'll they'll, uh, stay chastened as at least they are now for, you know, this 18 hour period. So it's it's distressing. When we come back with National Review editor Rich Lowry, I want to uh, continue our discussion of the Blue Check Mafia and provide an example of uh, just exactly how it works, the give and take between uh, big tech and uh, the D.C. press corps. Uh, Rich can explain when we come back. 
the Dan Proft Show. We're back with National Review's Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, as well as Fox News contributor. Before the break, we were talking about uh, Twitter censorship of the Hunter Biden stories in the New York Post and the uh, Blue Check Mafia and the interaction between the Blue Check Mafia and big tech. And a case study is uh, Jake Sherman of Politico. He tweeted a link to the New York Post story on Hunter Biden. Twitter slapped his hand. His response, I tweeted a link to the NYP story right after it dropped yesterday morning. I immediately reached out to the Biden campaign to see if they had any answer. I wish I had given the story a closer read before tweeting it. So he was essentially apologizing to Twitter, genuflecting before his Twitter overlord so that he could be reinstated or given clemency for his transgression. Yeah, and that's clearly how this works. The first step was a bunch of journalists saying, oh, the story shouldn't spread. The story is horrible. I'm not going to link to it as a matter of principle. It just goes to one of the have more small D democratic distribution of information ever. At the same time, we have more groupthink and efforts to suppress information than uh, in a very long time. So I don't know what to do about it. Well, and and um, the uh, illiberalism of the left, including in the media, ironically, is starting to ratchet up in more overt ways. For example, this New York Times piece the other day documenting the problems with free speech. Yeah. You know, core American value, something that all of us would have agreed on, you know, whether we where exactly we draw the line for what's protected speech or not. We all would have agreed on it's one of the glories of America and American exceptionalism is in doubt. And this is a disease that started in the college campuses and the idea that speech that you don't like is somehow threatening to you and has to be suppressed and is steadily spread out into the mainstream, into institutions like the New York Times. This is the thing, you know, I, as you guys know, I'm not a huge Donald Trump fan. I, I think he has too overweening a view of executive power. He says all sorts of things that are disturbing. But the other side making him out as a dictator is ridiculous. And at the same time, the opposition to him is deeply illiberal. Mm -hmm. So what we're looking at in November is these people, they they own the academia, they own the media, they own Hollywood, they own the, the big philanthropic institutions. And they could own every lever of power in Washington. <laughs> so anyone who thinks that's a good situation or a situation that's going to lead to more liberal outcomes in the country is crazy. Uh, back to the Hunter Biden story just for a minute, because, you know, there's some new developments. Uh, so much of the focus has been on his foray into Ukraine and Burisma, the energy company, the money he was making there. And this the email that suggests that he actually did make an intro and executive Burisma did have a meeting with Joe Biden, even though Joe Biden says he had no communication with his son about anything related to his businesses. Then there's this other email again unverified at this point. But as Ron Johnson said, they're working to authenticate. And the Biden campaign has said nothing about them being inauthentic. Email between Hunter Biden and this Chinese energy company, CEFC, in which, uh, well, let me just read this. My understanding is that the original agreement with the director was for consulting fees based on introductions alone, a rate of $10 million per year, for three-year guarantee totaling $30 million. The chairman changed the deal after we met in met in Miami to a much more lasting and lucrative arrangement to create a holding company, 50% owned by me, 50% owned by him. This was so much more interesting to me and my family, this proposal from the chairman of 
CEFC, who has not been seen since his arrest in 2018, by the way. Gosh, I wonder where he is. The much more interesting to me and my family, 30 million bucks from Tricoms or more per this other potential deal that I guess has not materialized. I mean, it's sleazy and corrupt. And we all know this is basically how Hunter Biden was operating. You know, he was a, a troubled guy who had a drug problem. My heart goes out to him. And you know, I hope he stays sober every every day the rest of his life. But Joe Biden knew what was going on and should have known what was going on if he didn't. You know, I do think the whole thing's a little sketchy. I, I, it doesn't totally make sense to me. These laptops are dropped off and, and yeah, they're I, pair guys. Yeah. The story's going back and forth. But if these are fabrications, Biden should be out there knocking him down and telling us why. And the media sh- should have some curiosity about this instead of just taking it as a given that it, the Russians must have planted this stuff and protecting Biden from really having to answer it. And, you know, he wasn't asked about it at a town hall last night, which is incredible. Just, Again, even if you think yeah. the Post story is bogus, what Biden says about it is inherently newsworthy. And that's leaving news on the, the table. And it's just it's incredible. Right. And and your point about the, the lack of intellectual curiosity as compared to the very curious press corps when it came to allegations of Donald Trump and golden showers in the Steele dossier. I know this is sort of built into the price now, but there does have to be. And, and again, like you were saying before about um, the big tech companies, I don't exactly know what the remedy is. I'm not sure there is one. But there does at least have to be a conversation about are there are there any standards? Do, do you want any standards? Yeah. Do you want any accountability in the press corps, understanding the influence that the, the press corps has? You're so, just at you a know, loss. On, on the dossier, I don't think it should have been suppressed. No, right? no, no. Any, I think the media wasn't totally credulous about it. And more importantly, our intelligence agencies were totally credulous about it. And it set them down this, this rabbit hole of this Russia investigation. But there's clearly a double standard. I mean, they, they all should forswear the dossier and say what terrible thing it was, and they never should have repeated this information that came from dubious Russian sources. But they never will, right? I mean, it's just a total double standard. And it's sort of impossible to imagine that the media's credibility be shredded any more than it had been to this point. But every single day it gets worse. And and by the way, on that, you know, Trump did respond to the Steele dossier and he completely disavowed it, saying that that it was right. untrue. So you got a response on the record from the principal there. Before we uh, let you go, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, does she get uh, all 53 Republicans? Does she get uh, any Democrats? I don't think she gets any Democrats, but she was wonderful this week. She is an exemplary uh, woman. She's a woman of integrity, pose. She was clear, knowledgeable. It was just a tremendous performance, and she'll be a great asset to the court. She deserves to be there, and she, um, uh, starting next week, will be there. And Susan Collins, particularly since she's up for re-election, she's really going to vote against Amy Coney Barrett. I kind of think she she will. Um, I'm not a hundred percent. I kind of think she she will. She she's in a tough, you know, a real tough spot up there. And, uh, you know, the conventional wisdom is that she's gone. And unfortunately, I think that's correct. Hmm. So maybe uh, instead of doing something courageous on the way out, do something cowardice, cowardly on the way out, to, to, in keeping with the, sort of the protocol, I guess, inside the Beltway. Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, Fox News contributor, author of The Case for Nationalism, How It Makes Us Powerful, United and Free. Thanks for the, uh, joining us, Rich. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much. Enjoy the weekend.
to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Uh, programming note, talked about how uh, Shelby Steele's new documentary, What Killed Michael Brown, produced by uh, him and his son Eli, was uh, canceled by Amazon Prime. I talked about that earlier in the week. WhatKilledMichaelBrown.com is where you can still watch the movie, and it's live on that website starting today. This week, in addition to matters of race, we heard a lot about abortion in the context of the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearing. So I was interested in this interview that uh, Fleetwood Mac frontwoman Stevie Nicks, this interview she gave to The Guardian. Well, she said some things that made sense, like Botox makes it look like you're in a satanic cult. Exactly. You know, work with uh, what the good Lord gave you. And uh, not so much making sense, talking about the death of her hero, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, Why is RBG Stevie Nicks' hero? Abortion rights, that was my really my generation's fight, she said. If President Trump wins this election and puts the judge he wants in, she will absolutely outlaw it and push women back into back alley abortions. Again, Stevie Nicks, wonderful songstress, not much of a legal scholar, so I'll let that pass. But here's uh, her personal story. Stevie Nicks terminated a pregnancy in 1979 when they, Fleetwood Mac was at their height. She was dating Eagle singer Don Henley. What did it mean to make that choice, she was asked. If I had not had that abortion, I'm pretty sure there would have been no Fleetwood Mac. There's just no way that I could have had a child then, working as hard as we were constantly, and there were a lot of drugs. I was doing a lot of drugs. I would have had to walk away. And I knew that the music we were going to bring the world was going to heal so many people's hearts and make people so happy. And I thought, you know what? That's really important. There's not another band in the world that has two lead women singers, two lead women writers. That was my world's mission. Uh, I appreciate Fleetwood Mac. Big fan. Saw him at the United Center a couple years ago. Great show. Still into their 70s. Mick Fleetwood and Stevie Nicks. This is the rationalization that goes along with um, being your own God. I know how things would have turned out had I not made the choice I did. Therefore, the choice I made was the right choice. Mm -hmm. I would have had to walk away from... You would have had to walk away from what? From doing drugs? (laughs) Could have been a blessing in disguise, uh, at least in terms of your perception of it. You could have given the child up for adoption, of course. You know, perhaps um, this is a a useful illustration of... um, the intellectual dishonesty of the pro-abortion crowd, where they mainly serve the predilections of upwardly mobile white women as they prey on downwardly mobile uh, women of color, mainly, really, based on where the mills are located. And uh, when you think of uh, women's rights shoes, you're thinking about um, a musical superstar who doesn't want the hassle. Uh, That's not how it's presented. Of course, that's not how it's presented. It's inconvenient. This life is inconvenient. So I'm going to make the bigger, better decision because I'm my own God and I know what my greater contribution will be to the world. And it's all from, you know, my mind's eye. Of course, there's no truth outside of me that I'm bouncing up any of my views against. Yeah, interesting. Appreciate Stevie Nicks uh, as a artist. No question about it. And frankly, I appreciate uh, her sharing her perspective on abortion and the abortion that she had, because I think it uh, is so illustrative of the truth about abortion as opposed to the sentimental arguments and apocryphal stories that are told by Planned Parenthood and the other pro-abort ghouls out there. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show.
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Maybe our next guest will have some insights on um, Hunter Biden and Burisma, given uh, he and his partner's business dealings in Ukraine. The person I'm talking about is Rick Gates. President Trump's former deputy campaign chairman, uh, Paul Manafort's former business partner, uh, author of the just released book, Wicked Game. Is that a hat tip to Chris Isaac? I don't know. Wicked Game. No, I don't, I don't think it's a love story. An insider story on how Trump won, Mueller failed, and America lost. Rick Gates, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, real quick, Wicked Game is a tip actually to President John Adams. It's what he uh, oh, yes. labeled president, presidential politics when he was running for president against Thomas Jefferson. Oh, very good. Nice historical reference. I went with the cheap uh, entertainment reference. <laughs> yes, so you're just more heady than I am. Um, so but before we get into uh, sort of present day, let's uh, rewind the clock a little bit, because I think people know less about you than they do Paul Manafort, and they don't know a lot about him either. Uh, you know, just give us that how you because uh, you were a longtime Republican political operative before you got hooked up with Manafort, before you got hooked up with the Trump campaign, as I understand the sequencing. But, but give us that, you know, how you got involved with Manafort, how you got involved with the campaign and how things went sideways with you and Manafort and your business dealings. Sure. In uh, 1994, I worked for a political lobbying firm in Washington. Uh, Paul Manafort was one of the partners, but ironically, I'd only met him once. Uh, I had come in through uh, a different partner. And then I didn't uh, actually spend any time or get to know Paul until 2006, uh, when his uh, business partner at the time, Rick Davis, went to go run John McCain's presidential campaign. So Rick brought me on to kind of fill his shoes. Uh, so starting in 2006, I uh, started working with Paul. Uh, at the time, he and Rick had some business in Ukraine. Uh, so Paul was doing political elections in Ukraine and in other countries. Uh, I helped him uh, with those. And then in 2016, uh, he was brought on to help with the Trump campaign. And I came on board with him uh, as the, at the time, deputy convention manager, because he was only hired uh, for one specific task, but as the campaign went on and as he started helping the campaign win primaries uh, and primary states, then his role was elevated, uh, as was mine. Yeah, it's fine. And then, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's important you mention that, no, too, no. because, because it, you know, how did Manafort get involved? He's not, he's not really an operative. Well, he sort of was, but even more importantly, people forget, there was the prospect of a brokered convention in 2016, and Manafort had experience, convention experience, and so that was the specific role he was originally brought on, was to pull that all together and make sure uh, that uh, the count was accurate, uh, that uh, the Trump campaign knew what they had going into the convention. The convention would come off well. And, you know, and with, a, a, frankly, a skeletal staff for somebody who was tracking to be a presidential nominee of a major party, uh, he needed more bandwidth. And that's what Manafort provided. And the convention, as it turned out, I was there, uh, actually uh, went off very well and, and smoothly in terms of any prospect of, of friction for the most part. 
uh, with respect to, you know, coming out of that contentious primary. So, so you know, it, it started off pretty good, is my point, and, and I just want to make sure, make sure people remember that aspect of it. Yeah, absolutely, and that was a, a significant moment because you're absolutely right. That is where the Trump campaign at the time didn't understand the archaic, traditional process, the rules and regulations that the Republican Party had established for, you know, an actual convention. And as I write in my book, Wicked Game, there's one moment where the never Trumpers attempt to uh, rally, as you may remember, uh, and try to oust uh, the president uh, from the nomination. So there were ways, you know, using, again, this archaic process that he could have, uh, you know, been ousted and and not been president today. You pled out to lying to the FBI and to conspiracy, right? Correct. Yeah, the conspiracy was a fair in the bank. And then the Additional charge uh, leveled against me was the uh, lying charge, which occurred during the process. And 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 what was the nature of the lie that you told the FBI? Yeah, absolutely. As I record in my book, uh, there was a meeting that took place between uh, Paul Ben Weber, a former congressman, and Dana Rohrabacher, who is a, a current congressman, uh, related to a meeting on Ukraine. Uh, I indicated that both Paul and Ben had both given me information on that. We went back, my lawyer actually went back to the special counsel and said, Rick actually remembers that it was only Paul that did that. They slapped a lying charge because they felt by saying, uh, I said two people said it, that I misinformed them. So that was where the lying charge comes from. So Manafort resigns from the Trump campaign after a New York Times story runs that suggests he's about to receive some $13 million from a Ukrainian pro-Russia political party. Number one, was that New York Times story accurate? And number two... You know, for what sort of work uh, was Manafort and and, and perhaps you by extension going to be compensated so handsomely? Sure. And it's no secret that, you know, when you get outside of the United States, this is Republicans and Democrats, uh, Obama's team, Bush's team. They all make a lot more money on foreign elections. So the specific issue there, the story was debunked. Uh, It was proven false. Uh, the, the claim was that Manafort had taken $12.7 million in cash. I still to this day don't know uh, anybody that's been able to haul $12.7 million in cash anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was based off of a, a, a copy of a ledger that was uh, allegedly found at the Party of Regions headquarters, which is the political party in Ukraine that Paul was looking for. Um, that information turned out to be inaccurate. Uh, the story was completely debunked, but uh, this is, you know, why partly politics is a wicked game. This was an attempt to remove Paul from his position because when he came on, he was viewed as one of the most senior people that Trump was able to get on his campaign. And a lot of people blame Paul for, you know, getting Donald Trump partly to where he was, particularly through the convention, because as I said, there was an attempt to remove Trump at the convention. And I don't think um, it would have been unsuccessful had it not been for some of the efforts that Paul did uh, during that time. And, and with respect to um, the business more generally, because, uh, yeah. you know, you guys are used, specifically Manafort, but, you know, they'll fold anybody in they can. You guys are used to say, well, there are, I know Mueller didn't find any any American colluded with the Russians, but there are all these curious contacts uh, with the between Trump world people like uh, you and Manafort and uh, Russian affiliated interests. So how do you respond to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there there is uh, as many, if not more on the Clinton side. Nobody just did, you know, kind of connect the dot game. Um, I do go into my book, Bill Clinton, you know, did several speeches, one of which he was paid $500,000 for in Moscow. 
Uh, obviously, the Clinton Foundation, the Clinton Global Initiative, uh, took plenty of money from various Russian oligarchs, Ukrainian oligarchs. The problem is when you get into politics that this is not uh, one party or the other. Uh, and this is a great example of where a lot of people uh, like John Podesta and others saw the opportunity to make money outside of the United States because of their political expertise and what they were able to do uh, in the United States for various politicians along the way. Uh, it's kind of no secret that everybody overseas loves the American model of politics and democracy. So there's a lot of demand and requests for running an American-style campaign uh, in a lot of these foreign countries. But so with, there but, are plenty. Right, but but with those relationships yes. that you, you guys developed over there, did you in any way try to enlist Russian assets, the Russian government, Russian functionaries of Putin and uh, the, the Russian communists to uh, operate, influence, intercede in the 2016 election? No, absolutely not. That was one of the first questions I answered for the special counsel, and it was probably one of the shortest sessions because they knew already that there was no proof. They had to ask each of us anyway. But once we responded, you know, in the negative, they moved on to specific um, uh, other instances that had nothing to do with Russia collusion within the campaign. Uh, and I think, you know, Dan, it's interesting. We, we keep focusing on 2016, like, you know, this is the, the be all and end all when our adversaries, uh, including Russia and China and Iran, have tried to interfere in elections. But as I learned through right. the process, you know, foreign adversaries have been interfering in our elections, you know, as early as 2000, if not before. Right. So I, I, I appreciate that it's been heightened to this level now, and I hope our country as a whole does something about it. But this has been going on for decades. This is not like this is the first time anybody's tried to infiltrate you with elections. Have you communicated at all with Manafort since uh, you pled out and, and, were, and served your time? No, I have not. When we come back with uh, Rick Gates, former Trump campaign deputy chairman, I uh, want to talk a little bit more about uh, real-time, the real-time political landscape. Uh, more with Rick Gates, author of the new book, Wicked Games, right after this. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with former Trump campaign deputy chairman Rick Gates talking about his new book, Wicked Games, and uh, the lead up to the November 3rd election. And I want to get your take on... uh, your former business partner, Paul Manafort, and your former boss, President Trump. Start with Manafort, your perspective on uh, on, on him, uh, your current relationship with him, if there is one, and your uh, handle on, on President Trump, your relationship with him, and whether or not you think he'll be reelected. Sure. No, I think with uh, Paul, you know, there was a, a lot of uh, anger and frustration early on with respect to uh, various points where he uh, did not defend himself, uh, certainly as anybody can attest, um, you know, you, you learn uh, things about people that you didn't know about, you know, um, at, at points in their life. Uh, I was not a uh, social friend of, of Paul's, as an example. I was an employee. Uh, I had never been to his house in the Hamptons. And so a lot of that, that I learned was 
very interesting information. Uh, and then as far as the, the president, um, I absolutely hope he gets reelected. And I say that because uh, I believe in, in the policies and the issues uh, that he's focused on. So I, I think, look, and this is why I go uh, in depth in, in my book. It, it's, it's watching somebody that's never been in politics before uh, not only break through and win the general election, but he had almost as, as big of a fight, if not a bigger one, with his own political party in order to get the nomination in the first place. And I think he has brought a different uh, skill set to uh, presidential politics that we've never seen before. Typically, we have traditional politicians. You have to be a governor or senator or a congressman in order to run for the office. He had never held political office before. And look, I think history will be a judge of whether those are the type of people that we want or if we want to go back to, you know, career politicians. But I hope it gives people out there in America an opportunity to say, hey, I don't have to climb a political ladder. If, if, if I have a skill set or if I have something to offer the American people, then I have an opportunity to run and I can still do it. Because as you guys probably know, our campaign was on a shoestring budget. We had uh, a lot less people and a lot less resources, but yet we were able to win. And that's a direct result of the president being able to communicate with the people individually. We, there's no filter with them, as you, you probably recognize. And, and what was the experience uh, being targeted by the Mueller investigation, ultimately agreeing to cooperate? Uh, uh, you know, and how, how do you view the Mueller prosecutorial team that you and your legal representation had to interact with? Sure. I think overall it was a horrific experience. Uh, I, I wish it on no American, um, not my worst enemy. It's not. But when you're involved in something like this and, and you know it's really not about you, but it's about something bigger, about trying to get somebody at the top of the pyramid, uh, it puts a lot of it into perspective. Um, and it, it, look, there, there was a lot of anger uh, at a lot of people, you know, particularly the Mueller people over the years. Um, but you, you can't let that anger consume you. It destroys you and it's destructive. And so you have to step back and, and figure out how you're going to get through it. And for me, it was my, my faith, my family, my close friends. Um, so it was a, a difficult time. I do think that the Mueller investigation is going to be known, though, as the greatest crime perpetrated by Americans against Americans on American soil. But look, we know a lot more today than we did three years ago, right? There's a lot of information that's been declassified. We now have you know, a number of people that were involved in anti-Trump efforts. Uh, more truth will come out. And I think the American people are going to have a lot of evidence to be able to judge uh, whether or not this was uh, something that bad apples, a few bad apples inside government agencies, uh, you know, perpetrated against uh, a sitting president duly elected by the American people. Uh, ben Sass, uh, the, con- uh, the excuse me, senator from Nebraska, has uh, said uh, recently in a, a call with constituents that uh, the Trump family uses the White House like Uh, It's a business like it's their business. Um, You know, your experience being close to the campaign, uh, is that is that a fair criticism, do you think, of the Trump family? Was that their perspective during the campaign? They were going to make this an extension of Trump Inc.? No, at the time, absolutely not. And I don't believe that today. I think, you know, Ben Sass is obviously entitled his own opinion. Uh, Frankly, he was never a big supporter of the president during the campaign. Right. This is. Uh, a great example of somebody that was frustrated that a guy like President Trump could be elected uh, because a guy like Ben Sass never will be because of just, you know, his background, his issues. He, he's not able to bring people together. So I think, you know, to answer your question, though, no. I mean, look, his business empire was, was already built. And there, I'm sure there will be countless articles after he's president about whether or not, you know, he built more properties, uh, you know, while he was president or his children did uh, who own the company now. Um, but at least from all the media that I've read, 
Um, and I think this is more of a function of the economy and the pandemic having the impact. But it's my understanding most of his properties have suffered losses since he's become president. So I will be curious how the media is going to be able to reconcile that if they've made these claims that he's out there trying to enrich himself when actually his business empire has suffered as a result of his election. Yeah, his lockdown policies sure aren't helping real estate values, that's for sure, especially hotels. Um, let, exactly. Uh, before we let you go, uh, Hunter Biden, you may have heard of him. Uh, Burisma uh, in Ukraine, <laughs> you may have heard of it. Uh, the emails, alleged emails that have been unearthed, uh, not just with respect to Ukraine, but more information on China. Uh, in your uh, dealings with uh, interests in Ukraine, did you ever run across uh, Hunter Biden? Do you have any perspective or insight on this whole relationship that Hunter Biden had with Burisma and what he was doing in Ukraine? Yeah, the, the energy companies and assets in Ukraine is a pretty small world. And the CEO of Burisma at the time, was the uh, Minister of Natural Resources uh, and Ecology uh, under President uh, Viktor Yanukovych, who is the uh, president that Paul uh, worked on his campaign and helped get elected. Um, you know, it, it, is, it is a uh, difficult country to uh, grapple with corruption. It, you know, they are a post-Soviet country. They're making efforts, you know, to reform those types of activities. Um, but it, it's just, it's so prolific, just like China. You know, we have the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in the United States. Those countries don't have that. Just to give you an example, you can be the richest CEO in Ukraine and also be the Speaker of the House or their equivalent, which they have a parliament, and there's no conflict of interest. They don't look at it the way that we look at it in America. So it's very prevalent over there. And, um, you know, I, I know Burisma, I, there was um, Vice President Biden at the time took three trips in 2014. I was working over there at the time. I uh, recall the trip that he made, uh, the two trips he made before uh, Hunter Biden was assigned to the board, and then he made a trip after Hunter Biden uh, was appointed to the board. Um, look, my, believe me, if there's anybody that can make this statement, I believe I can. After being through the Mueller probe, let's make sure we get all the facts and evidence. Absolutely, it doesn't look good. The rumors of, of, of Biden's uh, you know, business affairs have come out before. This is the first time that there is alleged proof uh, I think the most disturbing thing for me right now is that, you know, neither Joe or Hunter Biden have actually come out and denied the emails. Um, you know, I think if I were in their shoes, I that would be the first statement to make if you're going to make one. So I, I think, you know, there's still a lot of information to gather and, and, and let's see what the evidence shows. But if it is, in fact, accurate, then as a sitting vice president to attempt to enrich yourself, by either putting your son on boards or negotiating contracts, that's just un-American. And, and again, you know, as I learned and everybody knows, no one is above the law. And that includes Joe Biden. So let's see where the, the evidence shows. And, and if he was uh, complicit in that, then he needs to be held accountable. He is Rick Gates, President Trump's former deputy campaign chairman, author of the just-released book, Wicked Game, an insider story on how Trump won, Mueller failed, and America lost. Rick, thanks for joining us, and good luck with the book. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Take care. They can't touch. Yo, I told you, you can't touch this. Why you standing there, man? You can't touch this. Yo, sound the bell. School is in, sucker. You can't touch this. Give me a song, a rhythm, make them Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com.
Welcome back to the show. Returning to our uh, discussion of last night's town halls, uh, Joe Biden was pressed gently by George Stephanopoulos on uh, his non-position on court packing. Uh, his non-position combined with his all positions on Supreme Court packing were he to be elected. And uh, here's what Joe Biden said. Of course, the people, of course, American voters have a, a right to know where I stand on uh, this issue. And of course, that will happen in due time, uh, so long as certain stipulations are adhered to. If they vote out before the election, you are open to expanding the court? I'm open to considering what happens from that point on. Well, that's great, because you would be required to consider what happens at, after Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed if you were elected. That would not be something you'd be open to. It would be thrust upon you. Uh, so that's not much of a concession. Don't voters have a right to know where you they stand? They do have a right to know where I stand. They'll have a right to know where I stand before they vote. So you'll come out with a clear position before Election Day? Yes, depending on how they handle this. I will be clear as soon as I decide whether or not I want to be clear. It's good enough for me, uh, Joe Biden, the Biden standard, the Biden rule. I love how every utterance from somebody with a title uh, Senate Majority Leader that becomes the McConnell rule, the Reid rule, the Biden rule. The Biden rule is now in political campaigns. You don't have to answer any questions on any particular issue positions until after you're elected so that you don't make headlines, even though here we are talking about Joe Biden's non-answer to court packing. For more conversation on Joe Biden's non-answers, we're pleased to be joined again by Francis Menton, who is a uh, officer of the court, as well as a uh, blogger, the Manhattan Contrarian. Francis, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, greetings. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, as Biden said earlier in the week, it's just people like you, Francis, and the, the media that are fascinated by this court packing thing. It's not a big deal. I would take a somewhat different position on that, uh, Dan. Yeah. And in formulating my position, I've taken the trouble to go through recent Supreme Court cases to see important ones where the liberal justices voted as a block and lost. And you can just look at those cases and see what would have happened if they had had one more vote. And I would suggest to you that they would have substantially eviscerated, uh, let's say, a few important things in the Constitution. I would start with the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, and the separation of powers. Other than that, Nothing too much. Yeah, no big deal. Uh, so what you're saying, I, you know, and, and of course, Biden wants to be on both sides of it. At the same time, he, he's loath. He's been previously said he's loath to or worse to this effect to, to consider it because, you know, then it, you're going to go from uh, nine justices to 11 justices to 41 justices before it's all said and done in about the span of a decade, depending on who's in power once you establish this precedent. But he, he you know, he still wants to be keep his uh, options open based on how they handle it. I don't even know what how they handle it is. You, you already know how they're going to handle it. We're through the first the, the confirmation hearing before the committee. Uh, it's going to be kicked over for a floor vote and, and discussion uh, the week after next. And then it's going to be voted up before the election on November 3rd. So I don't know what's complicated about how they handle it is. I can't even figure out what Biden was talking about. Now, I have to admit I didn't watch his town hall last night. Uh, but I did listen to the clips you played of it. It, it and and I've also looked at what he said on this court packing issue before most of which consists of just refusing completely to answer the question another time he said the voters don't deserve to know his answer uh last night it it just didn't make any sense to me whatsoever I don't understand it at all 
Uh, well, and, and just to your point, too, uh, I know you mentioned the uh, amendments and the, uh, the associated rights that are implicated if you were to pack the court. 5-4 decision in Heller in 2008 establishing uh, the Second Amendment as an individual right, for example, big deal. 5-4 uh, decision in Janus v. AFSCME, uh, which uh, provides for uh, worker freedom uh, in closed shops. Uh, and it was a case that actually emanated out of Illinois. I know Mark Janus well. That's a big deal uh, for workers and their rights with respect to public sector uh, unions. Um, so, you know, I mean, these are cases that have material impacts on people's lives. So it's this idea that if we just go to nine to 11 and we eliminate the independence of the court, we just make it an extrajudicial body based on who's in power. Now, that is, that turns out to be a real big deal. It's not just the media who's, quote unquote, fascinated by his answer. Uh, many have said that the idea of the liberals is that the Supreme Court will be a super legislature that can enact the things that the real legislature uh, couldn't ever enact. The the uh, the examples you gave are, are not uh, examples specifically of that, but that is what the Supreme Court really became from about the 50s through about the 80s when the conservatives came back and got a functioning majority in at least some cases. And I think that's where they'd like to go back to. When we come back with Francis Menton, the Manhattan conservative, I want to uh, tackle a question that Joe Biden didn't have to tackle last night, and that's about his son Hunter's business dealings. More right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show from the New York Post reporting on this uh, computer that allegedly is Hunter Biden's that allegedly contains emails between Hunter Biden and uh, foreign interests, whether it be top executives at Burisma, the energy company in Ukraine or top executives at China's largest private energy company. Uh, And let's talk about that. That uh, second one for a moment, an email. This, again, alleged, not authenticated. But as Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson said, they're working on authentication. Email sent to Hunter Biden on May 13th of 2017 with the subject line expectations included details of remuneration packages for six people involved in an unspecified business venture equity deal. That would have been better than the $30 million over three years that Hunter Biden allegedly is communicating to this Chinese private energy interest about in terms of his compensation. I'll take an equity position instead. According to The New York Post, the email suggests that participants in this potential venture were considering reserving 10 percent of the equity in the deal for the big guy, quote unquote. Gosh, I wonder who the big guy would be if it's not Hunter, the big guy. Uh, For um, more on uh, this whole matter of this computer and these emails and Joe Biden's potential involvement in his son's business dealings, pleased to be rejoined by Francis Menton, the Manhattan contrarian. Uh, Francis, you're uh, uh, an attorney by training, but you don't need to be one to raise uh, common sense questions about uh, these communications, communications, by the way, which have not been disavowed by Hunter Biden or the Biden campaign. Well, that's the point I was thinking of making. When a trove of emails gets discovered and they're embarrassing to a politician, well, they could be forgeries. A relevant 
instance that occurred to George W. Bush was the famous Rathergate documents. Now, those were not documents written by George W. Bush, but they related to him, and they turned out to be forgeries. Right. If these were forgeries, it would be immediately obvious to Joe and Hunter, and they would disavow them immediately. So the fact that they haven't disavowed them, I think, is close to, if not 100% conclusive, let alone they're in a computer with all kinds of private stuff for Hunter Biden pictures and so forth. It would be an incredibly sophisticated piece of disinformation if that's what this is. I, I can't imagine it. Exactly. And in addition to that, in lieu of disavowals, you have actually could have happens from the Biden campaign in terms of the Hunter email with respect to the Burisma executive, specifically uh, Michael Carpenter and Amos Hochstein, who staffed the vice president at the time, told Politico that uh, while there was never an official meeting in the official record between Biden and this uh, Burisma executive that apparently communicated with Hunter Biden about meeting with his father, it's conceivable these staffers say that this gentleman from Burisma named Posarski would have approached Biden on the sidelines of some broader U.S.-Ukraine event. So they're not foreclosing the possibility that the two gentlemen could have met and discussed business. You would think that Joe or Hunter would remember such a meeting. Now, it's not yesterday. I think it's 2015, approximately, that refers to a meeting and happy to have spent time with you and your father. So it's five years ago, but you would think that would be a meeting they would remember, but of course, nobody will ask them the question. Right. That's that's one way they don't have to remember it is if nobody asks them if they remember it. And you just keep Hunter Biden salted away somewhere because Hunter particularly, I'm sure, would have remembered it. He was making 50 grand a, a month around about at the time. So, yeah, he had a, a real motivation to remember such things, didn't he? You know, there are things you remember and things you don't remember, like financial things and numbers are quite difficult to remember over time. But the existence of a major meeting, most people remember. Right. And and look, I mean, here, here again, whether Joe Biden was materially involved or not, financially uh, in an interested party or not, uh, the, the bottom line is uh, you have just a lot of documentation about his family leveraging his office for personal enrichment. And um, uh, that's that's just a problem. It, it may be not even a, a legal problem, but it is certainly an ethical problem. And uh, that's a legitimate campaign issue that the press doesn't want to seem to pick up on. Now, if this had been Trump Jr. or when it was Trump Jr. in the context of, for example, the famous Trump Tower meeting that was part of the Russian collusion investigation, you know, all kinds of reporting on that, all kinds of hammering on Trump Jr., questions about Trump Jr., suggestions that Trump Jr. was going to be indicted and so on and so forth. Nothing that ever came to pass, but they were had no problem zeroing in on the son of the president. Dan, I got to disagree with you when you say that this maybe is not a legal problem. There's a guy, I don't know if you know of him, you're in Illinois, I'm in New York. There's a guy named Dean Skello who yeah, sure. was the majority leader of the New York State Senate when it was last controlled by Republicans not very long ago, just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Dean Skelos is currently in jail, serving a four-year prison term. He's in prison for money that was paid entirely to his son, not to him, 
for what was claimed to be a no-show job. The defense was, yes, he didn't show up, but it was never intended to be a no-show job. But he was, Dean Skelos' son was a jerk. But anyway, the total amount in question was approximately $200,000 paid entirely to the son. And the crime of Skelos was allegedly using his office, and this is a weak fact, too, for the prosecution, but they did convict him. But anyway, allegedly using his office to help his son get a job which paid $50,000 a year, intended to be a full-time job, but he never showed up for it and collected approximately 200000 over four years. That man is in jail, okay? Compare that to the Hunter Biden situation. And I have, where he got a million dollars a year for two board meetings a year. And somehow the father, as vice president, managed to get the prosecution of the company of which Hunter Biden was on the board sidelined. No, look, I, 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 I agree with you that it doesn't that that there is legal exposure there. I'm just saying that you have to connect dots that haven't necessarily been connected evidentiary yet. These emails on this uh, computer start to do exactly that, connect those dots. But of course, it's only me and you who seem to be interested in such things or, or people of a political uh, of, a, of a certain political persuasion and uh, nobody who was so interested in sort of self-dealing when it comes and accusations of that when it comes to the Trump family or anybody else that they don't like politically. And so here again, we have this uh, different standards for different people based on who's in charge and what your political persuasion is if you're a target. It just takes a prosecutor to take up the case. I look upon, I'm not saying it's a complete laydown, but it is a much clearer, much, much clearer case than the Skelos case, and all the evidence is there. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a good comparison you make. He is Francis Menton. He's an attorney. He's also the Manhattan contrarian. Francis, thanks for joining us uh, again, as always. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. To close out, since we ran out of time with Victor Davis Hanson earlier in the program, I just wanted to isolate this uh, last discussion, last piece of the discussion we had. Asking Victor Davis Hanson, per some of the critical comments of Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska in the direction of President Trump, what he thinks would happen in the wake of a President Trump defeat on November 3rd. Uh, listen to what, what BDH has to say and have a great weekend. You would see somebody like Nikki Haley or Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz emerge with one big difference. They would adopt the whole Trump position. They would say, you know what? I don't trust global elites. We're going to still be ch- tough on China. We're going to secure the border. Not because they necessarily believe that, because they'd have no choice. Because, you know, there's 8 or 10 or 12 or 15 million voters who just simply wouldn't vote for them if they didn't do that. And they know that. The issues have changed and the parties changed and that blue wall will reappear out of nowhere if they neglect those issues. Just speaking as somebody who's conservative, and I, I think I speak for a lot of people who have similar thoughts, if Trump were to lose and we were going to get a Jeb Bush figure back there with open borders and globalization is inevitable and 
free trade's great if it's even if it's not fair, it makes us more competitive or it gives us cheaper stuff at Walmart. I don't think I would be very interested in voting for that person. Mm. I would just sit out. I'd just say, you know what, that's not my party. And I think a lot of people would be that way. Well, I don't have to say that, that that's why we lost. We have to remember that the fascism and the Bill Crystalism, we hadn't won the 51% of any presidential vote since 1988. We had lost four of the last five popular votes. Not that Trump won the popular vote, but he did win the Senate and he brought the House and kept the House and kept the Senate. And he had that local and state majorities. So when we were losing at the national level with Romney or McCain, or when George Bush didn't win the popular vote, or Bob Dole or Bush won, we were picking up at the local level seats. And during the Obama administration, it reached, I think, 1,400 seats that Obama lost for the Democrats, even though he got reelected. So there was something wrong, not with the conservative movement at the local and regional level. It was all at the top. Yeah, and because we never uh, we never nominate anybody that reflected what the people wanted. And it will not soon be forgotten, or it will be easy to remind people that it was McCain who cost us overturning Obamacare. It was Romney who sided with Democrats on impeachment and removal. I mean, those are those are seminal moments that tell you a lot about sort of that element within the party. I agree entirely. I think there'll be a conservative, but that conservative will massage that traditional message on trade and industrial policy on immigration foreign policy. It's just, you know, I supported the war in Iraq, but the idea that we're going to go lead a crusade to go over somewhere in the Middle East is not going to happen. There's no support for it. I, I just don't see that happening. I think that all of these groups that used to be allied with the so-called conservative movement, they've lost credibility, whether it's the John Bolton School of Demo- uh, Diplomacy or it's the Jim Mattis, retired military, that cast, Mike Hayden and Nick Raven, all those people are the corporate boardroom people. I just don't think that they have any residence anymore in the conservative movement. This is the Dan Proft Show.